service. But if for now, if you'll go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 10, if you're not there already, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 10, as we resume our study today in 1 Samuel. If you've not been with us, uh, 1 Samuel takes us through a time in Israel's history when the people had rebelled against God. Uh, we're told during this time of the judges that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so we have the people of Israel uh, going through that familiar experience we see them go through throughout the Old Testament, where for a time they'll repent, they'll trust in God, then they'll turn away from God, uh, then he'll call them back to repentance. And so we've seen kind of all of that taking place so far in these first ten chapters. But one of the things that's been central has been the people's cry for a king. Uh, God was their king, God was their leader, but they wanted to be like all the nations around them, and all the other nations had kings, and so they've asked God for a king. Uh, but in asking that, God has been very clear to rebuke them, because they're not asking uh, with the right intentions. They're asking because they're rebelling against God. Uh, they don't want God's rule, they, they want a, a man, a, a leader who will lead them as a nation. And so where we were last Lord's Day is God has directed them to Saul. Well, they don't know that yet, but that's what's taking place. Uh, the way that we've come to Saul and been introduced to him uh, was that his father lost some donkeys. And he went out to look for those donkeys. He spent three days looking for them. Uh, he could not find them. But in that process, he came to Samuel, the prophet of God. And Samuel then told him God's will. And he anointed him as king. But he did this very privately. Uh, no one but Samuel and Saul up to this point know about this proclamation and this declaration that Saul would be king. And so we pick up today now in the passage that takes us to a much more public event where Saul is chosen as the king. And so we're going to look today at 1 Samuel chapter 10 verses 17 through 27. And if you're able to, out of reverence for God's word, if you would stand together as I read this passage for us. And this is what the holy word of God says. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. And the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. And when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! 
Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. You would pray with me. Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray, God, that we would live according to it. And that today we would respond to it in repentance and faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, over the years, I have officiated quite a few wedding ceremonies, and I have kind of a practice as part of that. What I usually do before the wedding begins is I'll go check on the groom, and I check on the bride, and I'll pray with each one of them. And part of that is just to, to make sure where our focus is where it should be as we're preparing for that wedding ceremony, uh, the the the, the moment when that covenant is made before God and before witnesses, and I want to make sure hearts are prepared for that. Uh, the other part of it is, is just logistically to check and make sure everybody's ready. And I began doing this uh, early on uh, in light of one particular event that took place. It was one of the first weddings I'd ever done, and so I went in and I prayed with the bride and with uh, her bridesmaids, and then I went in to pray with the groom, and there was no groom. Uh, I looked around for the groom, I couldn't find the groom, and then one of the groomsmen came to me and said, I heard him say something about cold feet, and he got in his car and left. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in any situation like this before, but immediately I started trying to figure out what in the world I was going to do. Uh, there were about 300 guests already at the church. Uh, we were supposed to start this ceremony in about 10 minutes we had all the guests, we had the preacher, we had the bride, but we did not have a groom. And all of those are necessary. So I started going through this in my mind and what I would say to these guests and how I would try to explain this to the bride-to-be. And about that time, the groomsman who had given me the news earlier ran up to me and said, We found him, he's here. And by the way, I misunderstood what he said. He wanted a cold drink. He didn't have cold feet. So everything went along as planned, but I made a rule, and I share it often with folks that I'm part of their wedding, no leaving the church until you are married. That is a wedding I will never forget, and, and especially that thought process my mind was going through. Uh, how to go before that wedding party and all those guests and say, uh, we don't have a groom. If that happened, it would have been very unexpected, far from what anybody was expecting to witness that day. As we come to 1 Samuel chapter 10, the people have eagerly been anticipating the pronouncement of a king, but the unexpected is about to take place. What takes place in the verses that I read this morning is far from the minds of the Israelites. They had heard of the coronation of kings of nations all around them. They wanted to be like those nations. They had likely heard about the festivities and the feasts that would take place when a king was proclaimed. And now it would be the coronation of the first king of Israel. They were ready to celebrate. 
but the unexpected takes place. And so we're going to look to that unexpected event now as we walk through this passage together, beginning with the first point there in your outline. Uh, the unexpected thing that takes place first is this. The Lord rebukes the people. The Lord rebukes the people. This coronation becomes a confrontation. This, this ceremony that was supposed to be festive, it, it becomes a very sober moment as the Lord confronts the people on their sin. Now first let's notice the location of where this is taking place. And in verse 17 we read that this is at Mizpah. Now, if you remember in our study in 1 Samuel 7, uh, this was the place, Mizpah, where Samuel gathered the people together when they repented. Uh, that moment in Israel's history when he told them they needed to be rid of their pagan idols. They needed to turn and repent of their sin. And the people of Israel did that. They returned to the Lord that day and they repented that day. And it was such a, a pivotal moment for the Israelites that Samuel erected there a stone, the Ebenezer stone, just outside of Mizpah. And that stone was a stone of remembrance, so that any time the Israelites walked by that stone, they would remember, the Lord is our helper, the Lord is our deliverer, the Lord is the one who forgave us of our sin. We should trust in the Lord. But now time has passed, and now the people aren't trusting in the Lord. And now the people just want to be like everyone else around them. They, they're surrounded by worldliness. They want to be like the world around them. And now God is calling them together through Samuel back to this place, back to Mizpah. And this monument, this Ebenezer stone, would be something that many of them would pass by. But few of them would actually remember what it meant. And that's kind of how monuments are at times. Years ago, when I was a college student, I had the opportunity to go to Eastern Europe and do some ministry there. And one of my favorite cities I went to and that I've ever been to was in Prague in the Czech Republic. And there in Prague, there's a, a city square, city area where people congregate. And there in the middle of that city, there's this very large monument. It's a tribute to Jan Hus. Jan Hus was a great reformer. Uh, Jan Hus was a hundred years before Martin, or excuse me, before Luther nailed the uh, the ninety-five theses to the church doors at Wittenberg. He, he was one who came before him. He he fought for the gospel. He fought for people to understand the word of God. He fought for people to respond to the word of God in repentance and faith. And he was killed for these things. He was a martyr. And he was considered at that time a, a national hero to the Czech people. And so they erected this monument to him, to this martyr of the faith who stood firmly on the gospel. But today, thousands of tourists pass by this monument, and many citizens will gather around it, and they have no idea who Jan Hus was. They have no idea of the gospel that he stood for. That's what our monuments often become, just markers, but not remembrances. As the people of God passed by the Ebenezer, it was a marker for them. Perhaps it was a measurement. Well, we've got this much farther to go once we pass the Ebenezer stone. But they had forgotten what it meant. And that becomes evident in the Lord's rebuke of his people. That they had indeed forgotten. 
So Samuel shares the Lord's rebuke with them, verse 18. He reminds the people that God was the Ebenezer, that he was the helper, that he was the deliverer, that he set them free from their slavery in Egypt. He reminds them of all these things they should have already been reminded of. But then he shares the Lord's rebuke with them in verse 19. They wanted a king, not a God. They wanted a king who would help them to fight their enemies and protect them from those who would bring harm against them. Not a God. And so he rebukes them. And God says it plainly, but today you have rejected your God. The coronation of Israel's first king begins with a rebuke. It's a reminder here for us of how we today should respond to rebukes. We, we should respond to them through repentance. And we see the rebuke of God all throughout His Word. Uh, one of the passages where this really is clear to us is in the book of Revelation, where uh, the, the Word of God is being revealed to churches. And these churches uh, today for us very much represent groups of believers and how we've responded to the Word. And there in Revelation chapter Three, the Lord rebukes the church in Sardis. He says this, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Friends, consider how much our churches need that rebuke today. How many churches perhaps have a, a legacy of faith, have a reputation for good things, but are spiritually dead. And that can be true of us here today as well. It can be true of some of us this morning. Maybe on the outside, you, you look religious today. I mean, after all, you came to the early service. <laughs> I mean, you're the real religious ones. And maybe on the outside, you've got it all cleaned up and, and dressed up. Maybe you know the, the way to speak Christianese and the right words to say and the right things to do. But the question is, is your heart today a heart that belongs to our King Jesus? Are you living under the authority of Him and His Word, wholly and entirely? Is Jesus your Lord today? Are you just going through the motions and in your private life, in your private thoughts, rebelling against God and living however you want to live. The call for you and for me this morning is to wake up, to remember the gospel that was proclaimed and return to it and repent and turn from our sin. We are always to respond to rebukes with repentance. But sadly, that's not what happens here in 1 Samuel 10. The people do not repent. In fact, the Israelites here are marked by unfaithfulness. That they continue to go through this vicious cycle where for a time they may repent like they did back in chapter 7, that first time they were in Mizpah. And for a time they may remember, but then they forget and then they rebel. And here, as God rebukes them, they aren't faithful. They don't repent. But the Lord is faithful. And so he's going to do what he said he would do. And he's going to give them a king. Which brings us to the next point there in your notes. Number two, the Lord reveals his choice for king. The Lord reveals his choice for king. 
the people are commanded to present themselves to the Lord, and so they are grouped together by family tribes, and they come before Samuel as these tribes. And we see here this process through which they're identified by tribe, and then a tribe is taken by lot, the Scripture tells us, and then all the clans in that tribe come together, and a clan is taken by lot, the Scripture tells us, and then the individuals of that clan are there, at least most of them, and an individual is taken by Lot. Now, we don't really know the details of what that means. I mean, we understand tribe and clan and individual, but as far as this process of being taken by Lot, we don't have any descriptions in verse Samuel that explain to us what this is. It's some process here through which the Lord was clearly revealing who his chosen king was going to be, but we don't really know a lot about this process. But the people of God seem to know some things because this process has taken place before. In fact, we see it principally in Joshua chapter 7 in dealing with the sin of Achan. Now, if you remember that story and what happens there in Joshua 7, uh, you know who Achan was. And the way that Achan's sin was pointed out was in the same manner. God called all his people together. First, he identified a tribe, then he identified a clan, then he identified an individual Achan. And Achan in this situation was called out because he had sinned against the Lord. God's people had been instructed to go in and conquer their enemies and to completely obliterate them and take none of the spoil of battle for themselves. But Achan rebelled against the Lord. He saw some garments that looked appealing to him. He took some gold and he took some silver. And then he went and he hid these things back to the camp. And God brought great consequence against his people because of the sin of Achan. And so he uses this same process we read about today of choosing the tribe and the clan and the individual to identify Achan. And if you know what happens in Joshua 7, you know what then happened to Achan. Achan and his children and all of his livestock are taken out and are stoned to death. Understanding this might help us to better understand then why Saul does what he does in 1 Samuel 10. Because now we come to the point where Saul has been taken by Lot, and perhaps Saul is thinking about what happened just a few generations before. A story he and other Israelites would have well known And now this process has taken place, and now he's the one who's been identified, and now he hides. Why was he hiding? Well, maybe he was thinking about Achan. The Lord had just rebuked his people for their sin, and so perhaps Saul thought, well, here we go, he's going to take me out and make an example of me for them wanting a king, and what happened to Achan is what's going to happen to him. Maybe he was scared. Maybe he was afraid of how the people would respond. After all, we see in this passage, not all of them are enthusiastic. There's at least one group who despise him. And perhaps he feared how people might respond to him being king, and that might bring harm to him or to his family. Or maybe Saul's just scared. And we don't know how much time's taken place between the passage we looked at last week And the passage we started in this week. What we know when this private ceremony took place and Samuel anointed Saul, he told him to go ahead of him to a city and to wait there for a week. 
Well, now time has passed. Maybe it's just a week. Maybe it's been months. And maybe during this time, Saul's been really processing through what's taken place. And maybe he doesn't want to be king. Whatever the case, he hides. But we're reminded from this passage that you can never hide from God. The people can't find him. But God does. Look at verse 22. The Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. The people are looking all around for Saul to the point that they come to God and say, Well, maybe there's somebody else you were going to pick because Saul's not here. And then it's the Lord who reveals to them, Oh, he's here. Let me tell you where he is. Again, it reminds us, friends, that we can never hide from God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, the writer of Hebrews tells us, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You can't hide this morning. We can't hide our sin from God. We can hide it from each other. We know how to cover things up. We know how to get defensive. We know how to put those walls out there. We know how to keep some things private and hidden from even the closest people in our life. But friend, we cannot hide our sin from God. He knows you. The scripture says better than you even know yourself. And he knows the darkest, most rebellious parts of our heart and mind. And that's what makes the gospel so glorious, isn't it? That God, knowing all of those things about us, the depth of our sin, would send His Son, His only Son, to die in our place on the cross. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We can't hide from God. So, Saul is found, he is brought before the people, and now the people respond to the Lord's choice he is announced as the king and notice the response from many long live the king at least that's how some of them respond but as we see in our third and final point not all of them are that enthusiastic which brings us to our concluding point here the the people at least some of them rebel against the lord's king they rebel against the lord's king So now Samuel has brought Saul in front of the people and again we're reminded uh, of Saul's uh, stature and how he stands above all the people and and God proclaims him as, as one who stands out literally above all the people. There's nobody else like him. And then Samuel goes through now and he tells the people the rights and the duties of kingship and he writes these things down. Now, many commentators believe that what he's doing here is he's going through the passage that uh, Pastor David read earlier, Deuteronomy 17, where long before this point in history, God had told his people, you're going to want a king, and here's what a king needs to do. And here's what a king needs to look like. He can't be one that acquires and hoards wealth. He can't be one who marries a bunch of wives because if he does, his heart's going to be captured by the things of this world. And he'll pursue worldliness. He has to handwrite the law of God and read it every day. He has to be under the authority of God's word, God says of the king. And so God told all these 
responsibilities to his people about what they would need a king in Deuteronomy 17. And now in 1 Samuel 10, 10, we have Samuel reminding the people, here are the rights of kingship. Here's what a king should do. And probably going through these very same things. Side note, these are qualities we should still look for in leaders today, aren't they? Leaders who aren't in office for their own financial benefit, but to serve the people. Who don't use their position to profit themselves. Leaders who aren't captivated by the things of this world and just consumed by worldliness and the changing whims of this world, tossed here and there by popular opinion. Leaders who govern according to God's word and are accountable to him. These were important traits in Samuel's day. They're important traits in our day as well. So Samuel shares these things with the people. And then notice here, he sends all the people to their homes, including Saul, and Saul goes. It's a reminder here that Saul started out well. Saul started in the beginning as a man under authority. Samuel was God's prophet, and God's prophet said, go home. And so Samuel went home. (coughs) He did what he was told to do. But not everyone does that. Come to the end of this passage and we read that some people rebel against Saul as king. They rebel against God's chosen king. And the scripture just calls them worthless fellows. It tells us they despise Saul. They don't agree with God's choice. They say, how can this man save us? And with that, they ignore the king that God had sent. Imagine that. Ignoring the king that God sends. 1947, there was a royal wedding between Princess Elizabeth and the Duke of Edinburgh. It was like royal weddings in our day. There was much pomp and much circumstance. Dignitaries, world leaders from all over came to witness this union. Among them was the 12-year-old monarch of Iraq. His name was King Faisal. King Faisal was just a boy. He wasn't very interested in the wedding itself, but he was very interested in the parade, the wedding march, because there were these prancing horses leading the parade. And so he was just dressed in his his, uh, eastern outfit. He didn't really stand out as a king, and he tried to make his way up to the front line so he could see these prancing horses. At that point, soldiers saw him. They thought him just to be a a 12-year-old kid getting in the way, and they pushed him to the side. It wasn't until days later that they realized this great offense against a king. And so newspapers throughout that nation ran with the article. The headline said, We're sorry, King Faisal. We didn't know who you were. One of the papers said this, the incident would have never occurred had King Faisal been wearing a crown and carrying a scepter because he didn't look like a king. He was ignored. Well, that same thing happened to our Lord, didn't it? Jesus didn't come with a crown with a scepter in his hand. The only crown he would ever wear would be a crown of thorns that Roman soldiers would put on his head. He would carry no scepter. He didn't look like a king. 
And he too, like we see here in 1 Samuel 10, would be surrounded by worthless fellows who would say, in essence, he can't save himself. How can he save us? And they would ignore God's chosen king. Friends, as we read about these worthless fellows in 1 Samuel 10, as we consider the events that happened, at Calvary, we need to ask the question this morning, are we ignoring God's chosen king? Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is king. Jesus Christ is supreme. The scripture says the day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But friends, that does not mean that every person will be saved. Those who will be saved are those who bow the knee today. Those who will be saved are those who confess today that Jesus is indeed Lord. But it will not happen if we ignore God's chosen King. And so the question for us today is, are we ignoring Him? And if so, the call, the rebuke from Scripture today then is to remember and to return and to repent. And that's what we do every time we come to the Lord's table together. And so we're going to come to the Lord's table again today a bit differently than we have in the past because this is an opportunity for those who are confessing followers of Jesus Christ to remember. The Scripture says when we partake in the Lord's Supper together, we, we are remembering what took place. We are remembering the body and the blood of Christ. We are remembering the price that was paid for our salvation. We are remembering that we serve a king that did not come with crown and scepter, but who rules the entire universe today. It's a reminder to us of the glory that is coming and the day that we will feast in Zion with our king. And so we're going to transition to that time now. This will be our time of response. This is how we are responding to the Word of God today through partaking in the Lord's Supper together. Again, this is for those who've made a profession of your faith in Jesus. If you've not done that, we ask that you observe. And we're going to do that by taking the bread and taking the cup together. Now, I'm going to read Scripture and I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to do this, but just as a means of helping explain what's about to happen. Uh, on this little cup you have here, there's just a little thin piece of plastic. When you pull that off, there will be a piece of bread. Some of you might have seen the headline this week. Uh, it came out of Europe. It said that Subway bread is not bread. <laughs> uh, I believe it was Ireland. They discovered the sugar content of bread at Subway uh, makes it illegal to qualify it in Ireland as actual bread. It's got so much stuff in it. This is not Subway bread. <laughs> there ain't much here. It's a small, tasteless wafer. But what does it represent? That which we cannot fully understand. It represents the majesty, that the kingship of Christ. It, it represents the body that went to the cross for us. The scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. We deserve death on the cross. But the scripture also tells us that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our account. And so when we take this bread, we are reminded that Jesus is our substitute 
And Jesus paid the price for us. And we'll take that in just a moment. After we do, you'll notice there, after you peel off that thin piece of plastic, there's a little lid that can be broken. And when you peel that back, it reveals the juice. And so parents, you might need to help uh, your children with this if they're partaking today. And so I'll go ahead and direct you now. If you'll go ahead and remove that thin plastic on top. Have that bread ready to receive. And then we'll receive the juice as well, so you can remove that other lid and test your dexterity today. Just another housekeeping note, when you're done with this, you can just put the cup in a little, uh, little place in the front of you where you normally put the cup, and the deacons will pick those up. But as you figure that out, let me read the scripture for us and pray, and then we'll receive this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this is what Paul writes. For I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So friends, if you would pray with me, and then we'll receive the bread and the cup together. Father God, we thank you for this reminder today. This bread and this cup. Small items in our hands. But they represent something far from small. The splendor of a king who would lay down his life for his subjects. A king who the scripture says will return for us. A king who we will one day feast with. Not with a little tasteless wafer or a small thimble cup of juice. But we will feast in the house of Zion with our king. And as we receive this today, we are reminded that that day is coming. The day when there's no more death and no more tears. The day when there's no more grieving sin in our lives and in the lives of others. That day, Lord, when all will be made new. So help us to long for that day. Help us to remember, Father. And help us, Lord, as we prepare to receive this bread and this cup to repent. Your word also tells us if we take this bread and take this cup with an unrepentant heart, we are bringing judgment on ourselves. And Lord, that doesn't mean that we need to be perfect people today to take this, but it means we need to trust in a perfect Savior. So Lord, if there is sin in our heart this morning that we are refusing to repent of, perhaps something that no one in this room or in our lives knows about, but you know, because we can't hide from you. In this moment now, Lord, help us to repent of it before we receive this cup and this bread. Friends, before we take this bread and cup, let's take a moment now as we're praying. And I'm going to offer just a moment for you there silently to pray as well. If you need to repent, if you need to confess sin to the Lord and turn from it, then do that now before we receive this bread and this cup.
Father, thank you for this bread and this cup that we now receive in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. You can now take the bread and the cup. Friends, we're going to respond now to the word and to the Lord's Supper with a hymn of remembrance of the great gospel that has saved us. So if you would stand together and let's lift our voices. 